welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm your host, Sam Stern. Today we speak with Alexandra Katahakis, founder and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, and the author of Erotic Intelligence, Igniting Hot Healthy Sex While in Recovery from Sex Addiction. She's also the author of Mirror of Intimacy, Daily Reflections on Emotional and Erotic Intelligence. Alexandra is what you might call an expert on sexuality. It's her life's work. And together we explored a lot of topics, including the difference between desire and eroticism, the search for novelty within long-term sexual relationships, the pitfalls of love addiction and sex addiction, why examining peak sexual experiences can be helpful in developing a sex life that you really love, how to approach trauma in a context of healing, and a lot more. Alexandra was a thoughtful and articulate speaker who I really learned a lot from. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. So Alexandra Katahakis, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really um, intrigued by your work. And uh, I look forward to kind of uh, exploring it in more depth during this hour. Um, so I want to ask you which aspect of my work when you say that. I think the the notion of erotic intelligence uh-huh. uh, is a contradiction in terms mm. for for our society and the way that we experience sexuality. So I'm curious to, to hear you speak about it and kind of explicate it a little bit more. Yeah, that makes sense. Um in, I think, 1998, I started working in the field of sex and sexuality, and I ended up working predominantly with men who were sexually addicted and compulsive. That's how they identified. And so the model that was being used at that time was a 12-step model, and it was kind of a hardcore medical model where um, you really help people stop doing what they were doing and stop thinking those thoughts. And what I saw happening over time is that I was able to, with this model, help people stop engaging in destructive behaviors with sex. So sex wasn't the problem, it was the abuse of it and the um, compulsivity with it. And, you know, people were really, um, and do still hurt themselves in a lot of ways with sex. And then I started thinking about what, what I was seeing with these men is that people were afraid to be sexual again. And I thought, well, if sexual, you know, quote, sobriety is about stopping these behaviors and never having sex again, who would want it? Mm. So this notion of erotic intelligence um, came to me because erotic means the deliberate seeking of pleasure. That's a definition of it. Um, And intelligence can mean with the skilled use of reason. So if you're deliberately seeking the erotic and you're doing it with some reason, with some intentionality, then people can have all sorts of, you know, wild, lascivious, luscious sex, but not from a place of shame, destruction, um, or also reenactment of trauma, which is often what it was for people. Hmm. What was it that attracted you to, to want to make sexuality and the study of sex your, your life's work? I mean, were you a clinician before? Or? No, I was, um, I was actually in graduate school studying psychology. And I came across a book that I found, you know, extraordinarily fascinating. It resonated with me because I was in the exploration of my own sexuality. I was in my early 30s. And I was also seeing that You know, I didn't understand how people could have erotic, interesting sex over time in long-term committed relationships. And certainly today, I think California has something like a 75% divorce rate. 
that's really exorbitantly high. And we're in a culture now that's highly pornographied. People are churning partners like crazy. And I think what they're missing is the possibility of depth with one person. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of my quest or my question, which is how do you have a long-term relationship and maintain eroticism over time? And when you say depth, you mean a sexual depth? Yeah, sexual depth, which comes with emotional depth, intimate depth, um, you know, everything that um, the depth that life brings us and so many different facets that we are endeavoring to hang in there and have with another person. Mm. Okay, well, there's so much to talk about. I, before we started our interview, I think we uh, we spoke briefly about your book, A Mirror of Intimacy. Uh, which is Daily Reflections? Yeah, it's called Daily Reflections on Emotional and Erotic Intelligence. And this book was conceptualized by myself and uh, my husband, Douglas Evans, and Tom Bliss, who's my co-writer and colleague. And Tom came to me one day and he said, you know, there are no, there are no books out there, really good books out there on uh, daily meditations on sexuality. Why don't we write one? And I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And so we sort of went skipping down the path of writing this book. And something really miraculous happened with it. He had the idea of posting the meditations every day to our mailing list. Mm. And we started getting responses from people that were pretty outrageous. People were falling in love over these meditations, breaking up over them. Um, sometimes they would hit reply and they meant to forward it to their lovers. So we were getting all these beautiful love stories and poems from, you know, to people. And um, we started out with a smattering of people, and now we have over 20,000 people open these meditations every day um, because the book became sort of a community experience where he and I were writing, and we started to write to each other almost, and then the community was writing back to us. So all of the endorsements in the book come from our readers, um, and there are lots of them also. And we had a little contest um, and one of our readers also named the book. So we gave out ideas and people wrote ideas in, and that's how the title of the book came about also. Um, so this book now has won something like four awards in the last two years. It's really quite uh, been you know, sort of a labor of love and has turned out to be quite a surprise. Would you care to share today's uh, reflection? Sure. So today is June 3rd, and the reflection is free love. The most recent free love movement, while echoing early ones, was energized by the 1960s social revolution and sought to separate the state from all matters related to marriage, sex, and birth control. Its salient point was that sex, sexuality, and love relationships should be entered into freely without politics or the law governing our choices. But when we talk about free love on an interpersonal level, we must examine the inner recesses of our intentions more closely. Consider that using love to enslave or to hold on to another is a sure indicator of low self-esteem. Trying to change someone so she or he fits your ideal or coercing someone into staying with you, especially when you're compromising your own integrity, signals that you're not operating from a grounded place of self-love. Demanding constant, unquestioning validation from another human being can be the equivalent of holding him or her an emotional hostage. In truth, you do, don't really want that person. Instead, you want that person to fill in a missing part of yourself. Take a moment to think about love as a freeing power. The adage, if you love something, set it free, is sound. When you surrender your demands for love, you will recognize that the only real love is free and, remarkably, will return to you exponentially. 
It takes courage to take your personal need out of the equation so you can give your love generously and without expectations. When you live in the reality of who you are and what you really want, you likewise honor your partner and all your other relationships. In this space of free love, you too will be loved for who you are and not for any other reason. Beautiful. Thank you. Does the subject vary in terms of the, the, the reflections that are offered? Sure. I mean, at the end of every um, reflection, we have daily healthy sex acts where we recommend people um, do something in the direction of the topic. So for this one, the first one is, do you currently have someone in your life who isn't right for you, but whom you keep around because you don't want to feel lonely? If so, take a risk today and set her or him free from your half-hearted relationship. And the second one is practice loving kindness to all you meet. Give away your love through a smile or simple gesture and free yourself from trying to control all outcomes in your life. So we set these small tasks that have people, if they're willing, focusing on the topic at hand so that their form of loving and being sensual, sexual, erotic in the world becomes intentional every day. Mm. And so there are 366 topics um, and all of them, I mean, they range the gamut from sexual acts to um, states of integrity um, anything that surrounds the ideas of sex, sexuality, sensuality. Let's talk a little bit about the workshop that you're going to be teaching this weekend. Sure. It's, um, it's a women's workshop, right. uh, women's sexual desire. In, in your course description, one of the questions you pose is, do you know the difference between desire and eroticism mm-hmm. and, and intimacy as well? I, I got interested in the, I wanted to hear kind of a, thoughts around the difference between desire and eroticism? Well, I think desire, especially for women, can often follow arousal. And that's a tricky thing um, because men tend to be aroused visually. The visual cortex, I think, you know, is much more robust in males from the time they're infants. Um, And so men are very visual. Men can get aroused very quickly. Desire um, is front row and center. And for women, um, as time goes on, especially desire becomes more of the heart and of the body. So women have to start to feel their bodies getting aroused before they can desire deeply another. And that is somewhat recursive because desire begats arousal, begats the eroticism. Um, So we're sort of inversely organized, I think. And having women understand that and not feel shame about it, I think is important for women's sexuality. Again, especially because pornography tells us that we should be, you know, ready from the get go and um, the sexual acts that we engage in as women should be what men want, not necessarily what we want, but we should act like we want it anyway. Mm. So it's helping women to start to take ownership of their sexuality and what's really true for them, not so, not what's advertised to us. Yeah. Uh, you asked the question, do you find yourself going through kind of dropping one lover, going for another lover mm-hmm. because the sexual desire drops off? Right. I, I mean, I can only ask 
Is this a, a kind of a widespread problem that you've heard or identified in the work that you do? Sure, it is. And our desire does drop off because novelty starts to drop off. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're novelty-seeking creatures. Male, male and female. Yeah, yes. I mean, we're salient seekers. We're always looking for what's new and shiny and what's what matters to us. And that's part of the arousal of falling in love. High levels of salience, high levels of novelty. Um, and that activates the brain and then the body and the arousal systems. And so over time, we have to find ways of finding novelty in our relationship and Mm. with our partners. Mm. And that's where I think people give up. I guess there's sort of a common uh, mythos that I've heard that men are the one who are looking for the variety, whereas women, in order to beget the, the safety of their next of kin, are looking for the one partner and will stay with that one partner. Um, they, not all women will, because it turns out women have as many affairs as men do, um, but they do want that feeling of security and safety. But if women are equally, or if a woman is... Um, let's say, disturbed or distorted in her capacity to attach, um, or she is, you know, been tampered with sexually as a child and has distorted what we call arousal templates or love maps, she may want the security of a male partner if she's heterosexual, but she can't really tolerate the intimacy and the closeness, and she's always looking for validation sexually elsewhere. And that can start to create lots and lots of problems for people. That can start to lead in the direction of sex or love addiction. Mm-hmm. So this leads me to, to ask you about the Center for Sexual Health. Healthy Sex. The Center for Healthy Sex. <laughs> yes. Um, Talk to me about this. This is your this is your work. Yeah. Well, while I was doing the work I talked about earlier, um, I started thinking about sex on a continuum rather than seeing you know problematic sex and um, you know that there was problematic sex and then there was another kind of sex, I started to see that people could traverse this terrain um, and start to reach their full sexual potential by way of sort of deconstructing that which was problematic and start looking towards what they could have and could achieve. And shame is the biggest barrier to sexuality, I think. And so I wanted a place that was non-judgmental, where we could support people in whatever their sexual orientation was or, um, you know, fetish or predilection or what have you, as long as it was devoid of shame and um, people feel good about what they're doing. Mm. And I think there are so many iterations of humanity and so many different things that turn us on, don't turn us on, that when we get honest about it and can honestly communicate it to another person, then we're in our integrity. And then I think we can have these long-term sexual relationships. Um, Also, I think um, something peculiar happens that we don't like to talk about, and that is our sexuality changes decade to decade. And so when people are in relationships for 20, 30 years, do they really stop along the way and say, hey, by the way, that thing that turned me on 15 years ago doesn't anymore, and my body's changed, and arousal is different for me, and this is what I like now, with their partner not saying, wow, that's really weird or strange or I don't want to do that. Um, How do we stay open to each other? How do we get curious about each other's sexuality? Because we think we know one another after a long period of time, and we don't really, Mm -hmm. because we don't even know ourselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in continuing this quest and asking this question, for which I don't have an answer to. Um, But asking the question starts to open space for discovery. So you mentioned uh, sex addiction and love addiction, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking in terms of your workshop is 
at least addressing the question of sexual desire dropping off. Is there a connection here? Is it that the sexual desire goes down and it's we're looking for it, and so in that in that search, it leads to a kind of a sexual addiction? Well, that's not how I think sexual addiction comes about. I think it comes about from early, early childhood trauma, sometimes developmental, you know, as early as infancy, when you have um, problematic attunement between the mother and the infant. And so the regulatory systems in the body, the central and autonomic nervous systems don't set up optimally. So you have an infant now that may be anxious or depressed, and that infant turns into a toddler. And if it's also is not properly attuned to, or there's any abuse in the household going forward, you're going to get a child who turns into a teenager who's highly dysregulated, whether they're depressed, anxious, dissociated, and they're, and teenagers will look to find ways to make themselves feel better. Mm-hmm. So it's either going to be, you know, internet pornography, sex with other people, drugs, alcohol, you name it. For those people that aren't inclined towards compulsivity and addiction, they'll sort of figure it out or it'll drive drop off, whereas with a small percentage, it won't. And those people keep on using sex in ways that become problematic or destructive. Is sex addiction and love addiction, are, are they similar? Or is it a different type of person that turns towards love addiction? Yeah, I think, you know, usually we see females turning more towards love addiction and they become more sexually codependent. They'll do whatever they think guys want in order to feel loved, uh, feel cared for, have the illusion of security, uh, things like that. Whereas, um, and, and there are plenty of men also who live in the fantasy of love or finding the right one, uh, but they're not really watching the cues of who that person is um, and paying attention to the reality of what is. They're in some fantasy of what they want it to be. Mm. And people will churn through lovers as a result of that and not know why. So I had a, I had a bit of a question about sex addiction and I wanted to ask, do you think it's a contemporary affliction? Um, in any way? No, because, you know, as late as the 1800s and prior, if you look at the literature, there are many, many people that were writing about um, the sexual disease, um, that it was a moral problem, um, that it was, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of some of the language, but some early, um, you know, Benjamin Rush wrote about it, um, Havelock Ellis, one of the early sexologists, wrote about it. So people wrote about it for as far back as you can look in the medical texts as being a loathsome disease. That's what um, it was once written and once called. Um, I think the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is about sex addiction also. Oh, yeah? Tell yes. Me. Well, I think it's about the Victorian mores that existed at that time. Um, for all we know, he could have been gay. Um, there, it's it's written in such a way that it's generic, and we assume it's about alcoholism because he turns into this monster behind closed doors that nobody can get to. But I think he quite possibly was having um, a lot of compulsive sex or sex with men. Um, he was having to hide his sexuality that was turning him into this monstrous and deeply a pained human being. So the split in our sexuality goes way, way back, um, mm. if you look closely. Yeah. So I don't think it's new. I think what's what's changed now is that there are scholars who have delineated the difference between classic sex addiction and contemporary sex addiction. So this notion of classic sex addiction has to do with um, people who were traumatized. Um, and really, it's not... Um, 
percentage-wise clear, but for women, we typically see a lot of sexual abuse in childhood for those that are really sexually compulsive. And men also, but we definitely see like 90% emotional abuse, uh, lots of neglect as well. Um, So there's a reenactment of shame that's really taking place. And also if there was any kind of genital tampering, that gets reenacted in part because our arousal template gets set pretty young, like around 12 years old. So if at that time somebody's sexuality is tampered with and um, you know, children are often comp- uh, confused when they're sexually abused because the body responds. The body gets aroused. The, the boy will get an erection. The girl will start to lubricate. It feels good, but it's also wrong and dirty and shameful. And the child thinks they're going to get in trouble. So sex becomes furtive. It becomes about being degraded, humiliated, shamed in order for it to be arousing. So people will start to replicate those patterns. Mm. So that's the most classic version of that. And then with contemporary sex addiction, we're really seeing a lot of people, especially young men, addicted to internet pornography. And that in and of itself becomes the trauma Mm. um, because the images are so intense now and there's increasingly more violence against women in pornography, you know, spitting, choking, punching, um, lots of anal sex um, in ways that isn't really... um, there's no tending to or aftercare. It's it's just pretty violent. And that becomes the norm of what young men start to expect. And what we're seeing with some grassroots movements, one of which is called the NoFap movement, which maybe you've heard of. It's no. on Reddit. There's a group of guys called Fapsters. This was on the cover of Time magazine just last month. Um, where what was happening is a lot of young men, college age, were starting to lose their erections with their girlfriends. Mm. And they started thinking, wow, what's happening here? And what they realized is that um, they were looking at so much internet pornography, they couldn't get aroused. It's so easy to flip open a laptop, find an image, you know, masturbate, and ejaculate in minutes and be done with it. And as opposed to deal with your girlfriend, so you have to go out with her and you have to talk to her and then you go home and um, she's not a pixelated version. She's a real life human being. Um, And the arousal to the brain is not nearly as high because the novelty isn't as high. And so it's harder to get an erection in reality. So this is a huge movement online. Anybody can Google it and find it. Where all these young men are coming together, um, they're in the blog sphere, they're talking about it. And what's happening is it takes about four to five months of no pornography whatsoever for these guys to restore their erection. And this is a contemporary problem. This is not a historical problem. Uh And the longer somebody has been, the earlier they start looking at internet pornography, the longer it takes them to restore their erections. So a lot of people report looking at porn as early as eight years old, six years old, internet porn. By the time they're 20, they're in trouble. Because this is the in the brain, especially the young brain, the young male brain, the adolescent brain, that's not fully myelinated, it's not fully organized and developed, is now wiring up to pornography, internet pornography images. So all of that has to be undone is what happens. And it's undone by not watching it. Exactly. Because those real life sex. Right. Because those neuronal networks have to largely atrophy. Mm -hmm. They're wiring together because they're firing together. So they're tightly organized. 
And um, it's it's a crisis for people. You know, they don't think it's funny. They're in pain because of it. And they're scared. Because erectile dysfunction used to be an old man's disease. You know, when men get into their 60s and they have to take Viagra or Cialis, that's sort of a normal thing. But you've got guys in their 20s, 30s taking this stuff. And it's not working because it's not, it, that's a problem. Or erectile dysfunction in older men um responds to Viagra and Cialis because it's a drug that is um, increasing blood flow and oxygen to the penile chambers. Mm -hmm. But guys in their 20s and 30s looking at internet pornography have a brain problem. They don't have a penis problem. (laughs) So that's why it's a contemporary problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. Who are are the people who come to the center? Who, Who are the males who come to the center of healthy sex? We have an array of uh, people who come. We have people who come because, you know, men who come to Center for Healthy Sex because they have problems with, um, you know, erectile dysfunction, typically born of anxiety or too much pornography or rapid ejaculation, which is also a problem of high anxiety. Um, We have people coming together who've been in a relationship for a long time because they want to um, have a more optimal sexual experience with each other. Um, We have people who come because they've been caught typically by their wives um, because they've been having multiple affairs, going to sex clubs, hiring, you know, sex workers, um, their sexual massage parlors all over the place now, certainly all over LA. Mm. Um, so sex is very easy to come by now, very, very easy. And with the advent of cell phones, um, it's easy for people to cheat and have separate cell phones or separate email accounts that their partners don't know about. So oftentimes people come in crisis, they're in trouble, and they've been doing it for a long time. Um, it predates their marriage sometimes. Um, they never stopped doing it once they got married. And, um, or we have, you know, gay males who come in because they've been sexually compulsive and they want to stop. They want to get into relationship. Or we have people who want to open up their relationships and have more of a, um, yeah, open relationship or polyamorous relationships. So it really runs the gamut wow. of sex and sexuality. Wow. Would you say that each sex deals with like a a different sort of sexual affliction? You know, you you mentioned males and porn addiction. I'm Mm -hmm. imagining that it's women have less internet porn addiction than men. Well, there are plenty of women that are masturbating to internet pornography for sure now, but rarely do they come in and say, I'm addicted and I cannot stop. Um, Typically with females, they are looking for a relationship and more women are in um, internet chat rooms than males. Um, They're interested in the romance and the story of love than just getting off. You know, guys will go pick up somebody anonymously or hire a sex worker or go for sexual massage and it's strictly transactional. Whereas, you know, there are no, there are very few, if any, um, strip clubs that women go to to watch guys strip. There are no sexual massage parlors for women. They're all for men. So um, there's a distinction there. And women really want some kind of relationship. And so often... Um, they're struggling with finding somebody who can be intimate, who can be close with them. Um, and they're working on their own issues. So both parties need to be willing to look at what their sexual problems are, their sexual fears, their shame, their dysfunctions together so they can heal through one another. 
Um, but I think for this workshop this weekend, I'm more interested in, because this is not a workshop about sex or love addiction. Mm-hmm. It's really more about examining sexual desire, sexual fantasy, um, and making a space for women to get really honest about what their sexual fantasies are and talk about them mm-hmm. and see if there's a commonality and what the underlying desire is. Um, sometimes it's not the fantasy itself, but it's the underlying themes that we're looking for. Is it easier to, to teach when there's just one sex present, when you're teaching just with women, or I, do you teach just with men? Um, oh, yeah. my my In my career, I've predominantly worked with men. Um, I think it is because I think when it's gender-specific, people feel safer and they're freer, and then that energy is not there. Um, unless, of course, you have people who are you know oriented towards the same sex. But even that, with someone who's gay or lesbian, if they're in a room full of people who are predominantly straight, they're not going to come on to those people or they're not going to intrigue with them that much. So I think um, with women, to be able to talk about masturbation and arousal and fantasy, um, they're likely to be much freer with a group of women than with men present. Mm -hmm. I think what's important is that we're all in a collaboration and in an agreement that this is a safe and sacred space, if you will, and that everybody pledges to confidentiality. Um, and also to find out what people feel like they need in order to feel safe and go deep. So this, as you probably know, is about the chemistry of who shows up, you know, who's in the space, how willing the group is to go, um, how deep the group is willing to go, um, will depend on where it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write about examining the peak sexual experiences mm-hmm. and sexual fantasies. What do you think is is useful about getting into the to the fantasies part of it? Well, this um, idea came from Jack Morin, who has since passed away, who wrote a, a book that's a classic called The Erotic Mind. And um, there's something valuable in examining what about that peak sexual experience was so arousing? Was there anxiety present or... Um, a deep sense of spirituality or fear or a, a little bit of humiliation. Like what were the ingredients of it that made it so arousing for each person? And to be able to sort of pluck those out and say, wow, I really need that color of the rainbow in my sexuality in order for me to feel heightened and alive and highly aroused. Whereas someone else might say, oh, that's really weird or gross. I would, that would be a turnoff to me. This is what would really be a turn on for me. So I think um, looking closely at those uh, discrete pieces of what makes something so fantastic um, is worth noting so that you can replicate it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think it's possible that some things that people fantasize about are only going to be uh, pleasurable in the fantasy? It's not, yes. It's not going to be something they can bring into a relationship. Well, I do think that's true. And again, it's different for everybody. So, for example, many, many women have, you know, this... Uh, fantasy of being, uh, I hate to use the word raped because it's such a violent act, but Fifty Shades of Grey certainly opened up this a notion that uh, domination and submission and those sort of energies at play are highly arousing. But that, it, but you could ask a hundred women if they're aroused by that and they might all say yes. But if you ask those hundred women if they really ever wanted to be raped, they would all say no, categorically. So yes, the fantasy is different from the actuality. Um, and playing the fantasy out in a way that saves safe, sane, and consensual um, can allow for that heightened arousal to take place. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that remain in fantasy um, that are more arousing than actuality. And also our fantasies can 
you know, sometimes a Trump reality. That's why love addicts live in love addiction. <laughs> but, you know, it's like preparing to go for a trip and you have this idea about how fabulous the trip is going to be to so some exotic island. But you don't think about the long TSA lines and how long the airplane, the, you know, the flight is and your back hurting when you get there 20 hours later. That's never in the fantasy. So being in reality sometimes, you know, can shave off the edges of fantasy. Does anything about human sexuality surprise you now? No. <laughs> um, I, every day I think I've heard it all and then somebody comes in and tells me a story that I've never heard before. So I think we are incredibly curious creatures and we're highly imaginative creatures. I mean, we put somebody on the moon. Um, we have these computers in our hands now that can take us anywhere we want to go. So we're only limited by our imagination. So I think um, we're in a major sexual revolution right now. And it's interesting that we're in Esalen talking about this because the sexual revolution and the human potential movement started on these grounds. And we are now at a different place in history where we have more options than we've ever had before in all areas of our life. And certainly with sex and sexuality, you know, you and I could go decide to change our, you know, our gender tonight if we wanted to, mm. right? We could go have sexual reassignment surgery. There's, there, you know, surgeons all over that do this now. So we've never had this kind of freedom to ask questions about who am I sexually and how fluid am I sexually? And one of the big things that's coming forward that I've seen for years is the admission of male sexual fluidity. We've always been accepting of females being sexually fluid, but not males. You're either straight or you're gay, right? I mean, it's completely bifurcated. And yet now more and more white, especially white males are seeking sex with other men, not because they're gay, but because they like having sex with men on occasion. So this binary thing is really going to go, you know, the way of the dinosaur, I think, mm. as more people start to contact what pleasure means for them and start to throw off the constraints of gender and, you know, the supposed tos and have tos. And so I think there's a lot of um, sort of sexual experimentation taking place now. I had a thought about the technology that's at our fingertips these days, especially virtual reality. Right. It seems to me that there's a, a high chance that virtual reality will become the the, the go-to for pornography. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's happening now. It's available now. They've got, you know, um, and especially in Japan. And I think I saw a video on YouTube recently where these are like full virtual reality suits you know, and the glasses and the whole thing. And you strap into these suits and put the glasses on and you can have whatever sexual encounter you want to have. Uh, well, do you approve of this, doctor? <laughs> it's not about approval or not approval. It's just, it's changing the way um, we're going to have sex and the way we're going to be relational. And I think that's, that's the main thing is that when we talk about intimacy, for me, that's about eyeball to eyeball contact. You know, you and I can say that we're having an intimate exchange right now because we're looking at each other, we can feel each other, we're talking. That's very different than strapping into a suit by myself, 
putting on some goggles and taking a ride with um, sounds and sights and smells that are all recorded and digitized. That will change our bodies and our brains, and it may change the species. We may not need each other in quite the same way. Mm. Um, so who knows if, um, if intimacy is on the way out or way in? I don't know. Um, but it is a curious question and, and um, times that we're living in. Is it personally difficult for you? at times to be involved in teaching about sexuality and, and have this to be in the, in the sexual realm kind of intellectually, spiritually in a constant way. Does that ever get to be heavy? Yeah. I mean, especially with sexual trauma, that can be unbelievably heavy. I mean, the things that people do, what we do to our children um, is so egregious and just so reprehensible in so many ways. And, um, as a culture, you, you know, we're trying to evolve, I think, in the world, and there are all these disparate energies and ways of thinking going on. But the way we treat um, mothers when they're pregnant and the way we treat children when they're born um, is so uh, still archaic. And the sexual trauma that people endure really carves up their very sense of self. Can you speak a little bit more to the women who are, are pregnant? What, what did you mean by that? Well, it's just that, you know, what we now know from neuroscience is that the third trimester of pregnancy is crucial to the developing fetus and how all their systems are setting up because the mother is interactively regulating and connected to this infant. So there's a neurochemical intersubjectivity taking place. So if that mother is under duress, that infant's going to be born in duress because its nervous system will be on fire. Um, so whatever's happening to the mother is happening to the baby. This baby is alive. It has an implicit language with the mother. It has nothing to do with its cognition because those aren't, capabilities aren't there yet. And even in the first 18 months when the right brain is setting up, the relationship between the mother, who's typically the primary caregiver or whoever the primary caregiver is, um, and that infant is crucial to the setting up of the brain and the body. So if you want to set up a regulated human being, a human being who's going to have the best possible outcome with its structures and functions, you need that dyad to be highly tended to. Mm. Um, and politically, sociopolitically, we don't give mothers and infants that chance. Of all the countries in the world, just about all the countries in the world, we are at the lowest end of the spectrum when it comes to maternal and paternal leave. I mean, it's really, you know, so distorted that we don't allow for that. We just have babies and sort of throw them into daycare with strangers where they're completely freaked out, dissociated. It's like the making of an addict mm. um, where the parents are nowhere to be seen because they're working. And then we have all this mess with, you know, our kids growing up. And then we have the forces of culture bearing down on them. Mm. Wow. So... We need good public policy. We need good, good programs for tending to, you know, children, infants, mothers, um, all of that. So we can start to set ourselves up for, you know, successful um, functioning and sexuality, certainly. Mm. You mentioned the sometimes the heaviness with the survivors of, of sexual trauma and abuse. Do you ever meet people for whom the, the trauma feels too deep to affect change? 
and, and what's your technique for drawing out people who who've the, they've had their trust so badly cared for? Yeah, well, that's long-term psychotherapy, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's forging a relationship with somebody who's willing to hang in there and stay in therapy for a long time. And I believe when people are able to start to um, talk about what happened or they have somebody feeling with them what happened and they feel seen, heard, understood and validated um, the structures and functions in the body that have gone down that have become dissociated start to integrate um, they start to become enlivened and so it's like a car that's you know an eight cylinder engine that's operating on two cylinders you know it's just going to kind of you know you know lug along and when you start to get those cylinders functioning then you've got a really fast vehicle mm-hmm. And I've seen that happen with people. I believe it can happen with people, um, but people have to want to do it. It's a lot of work, but my feeling about it is we're all aging anyway. So where do you want to be, you know, mm-hmm. two years, three years, 10 years from now? Might as well be as healthy as you possibly can be. Do you make space in your workshops for the possibility of trauma coming up? Or trauma sure. Yeah. I assume that it's going to come up. You know, it's so subjective in this word trauma gets thrown around a lot now because um, everything's traumatizing. <laughs> if your coffee's not right, you're traumatized. Um, so I think we have to be careful with that world. But true, um, the impact of true traumatic experience usually happens very early on. Um, and with that comes dissociation where the nervous system is uncoupled and um, the person feels dead internally or like they're just not there or present. And that's the net effect of the trauma. And that's what we want to try to restore and repair and heal over time. Um, you mentioned in your, in your course description the, the need to communicate what we want and what we need to an intimate lover. Let's say that prospect feels abjectly terrifying, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, communicating in an intimate sexual situation is, is, is a challenge, I think, for, for many. What advice or exercises do you give people? Well, my best advice is not to talk about it while you're having sex. So um, having the conversation when you're fully clothed in a setting that feels comfortable and safe and when you have time, you know, to stretch out and have that conversation is really the place to take that plunge. And this is the conversation nobody wants to have about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases or... Um, you know, their HIV status or anything like that, or their addictions, that they're in recovery from something. But these are the conversations that are intentional. And it's about um, saying that if I'm in my integrity, I need you to know who I am, because I've accepted these things in myself. This is it. It's sort of like the, you know, the prince... I don't, I don't, I'm going to goof up this metaphor, but it's like the toad that has warts, right? Like every frog has its warts. And so nobody is perfect. So being able to say, hey, and we idealize each other, especially early on in relationship to say, okay, now we're in this idealization phase, but I want to be in reality about who I am. And I want you to know who I am. Um, and these are the things that have happened to me. These are the terrains that I've, you know, crossed and made to the other side. These are all part of who I am. And, um, 
if you have an aversion to this or it's not okay with you, you should know now before we have sex. Because once we have sex, there's a whole different merging and intermingling that starts to take place. There's a neurochemical rush that starts to force and forge the attachment between two people. And it's pretty crummy to have that experience and then say, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that, you know, my mother's an alien. Um, and oh, great, I didn't want to have an alien as a child, so I should have known that, known that going in. But seriously, that's like saying, oh, I have severe mental illness in my family. You know, and if two people want to have a child together, it's good to know that up front uh-huh. to say, oh, well, maybe I don't want that. Yeah. Um, or maybe I just won't have a child with this person and I'm okay with that. But these negotiations have to happen. And likewise with um, what people do and don't like sexually. If somebody has a particular sexual preference about something that they think someone else is going to um, be afraid of or not like, you better find it out on the front end because otherwise you will act like it's not true for you and then your desire will fall off and then you might end up cheating which is worse than telling the person up front so they have the option of leaving. And the pain of leaving at that stage is much less than the pain of cheating or being left four or five years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really about being conscious. It's about standing in your own integrity, being true to yourself. And if the other person doesn't like that, then they're not the right person for you anyway. Mm-hmm. Might as well find out on the front end. Okay, yeah. And do you practice this kind of honest blatantly honest communication in your friendships and in your relationships? Well, certainly in my marriage. Um, I'm not having sex with my friends, so I don't really have to talk to them about that that much. (laughs) Yes, but part of being, I think, in a marriage now for 15 years is talking about these things in really, you know, explicit and blatant ways. And they can be difficult conversations or there can be grief and loss in these conversations also. Mm. You have to risk that. I have to. We both have to because what it does is it I sort of paradoxically creates a deeper ent- uh, intimacy and a deeper love, and from that comes a deeper exploration of eroticism. Where do you get that courage from? Well, I think I've just learned it over time, and I also have a partner who is as intrepid as I am, and that yeah. helps a lot. Like yeah. nothing scares him or freaks him out. Um, so I have a good um, fellow traveler. Do you champion or privilege um, the concept of monogamy over something like polygamy or... I that That's such a funny thing because I don't like to impose any kind of morality on anybody. I know what's true for me. I, I also know that I've watched people in polygamous relationships struggle with it. And the people that do it well even say it's kind of a pain in the neck. It's a scheduling nightmare. You're constantly in conversations to make sure that this person's feelings aren't hurt or that person's aren't. And people's feelings do get hurt because sometimes you spend Christmas with someone, sometimes you don't. Um, sometimes you travel with someone, sometimes you don't. So these are... Um, um, when when working well, people have to be really conscious and be in a lot of conversation. And so for me personally, it's exhausting and intense enough with one person. I don't think I could manage it with more than one person. Yeah. But if it works for someone else, then that's, you know, it's their life. So for yourself, you've found it more simple to search for novelty within the depth of that relationship. That's correct. And I'm also interested in, you know, depth maybe more than width at this point. <laughs> um, I think in my 20s, I was certainly into width. 
and trying lots of different things and people and experiences and explorations. But um, that's just not where I am in my life right now. Mm, yeah. But we spent so much time talking about sex and I guess my kind of to come to a conclusion, what, why does it matter so much? Mm. Why, does it, why is it so central? Besides, besides just being fun, what is profoundly important about sex? That's a great question. I ask people that all the time. What, what's the purpose of sex at this point in your life? Why bother? I mean, it's so fraught. And I think for one, in a long-term relationship, uh, besides it being you know fun and exciting and arousing, um, they're also you know, ways to connect with the divine and deeply spiritual experiences through sexuality. I think there's a way of knowing um, God or the essential absolute, however you name it, through sex in a way you can't know it any other way. So there's that realm of it. But I think in kind of the day-to-day living, it's about having a positive emotional connection. That if you're having sex and somebody leaves their shoes on the floor and you trip over them, it's no big deal. If you're not, it's like World War III. Because people get agitated when they live with each other and they don't have that connection. So because it really changes our neurochemistry and it changes how we feel towards one another and it increases the novelty again also. There's a sensuality and that comes from touch and um, just orgasm, which is really just a big muscle spasm when it gets right down to it. That's a huge release. Mm. And so there's a freedom that comes from that too. So they're all different kinds of sex. There's, you know, maintenance sex and then there's like extremely spiritual mind-blowing sex and then super athletic erotic sex so there are all these different um, colors and tones of sexuality that can be at play in relationship and so I think to answer the question of why have it it's because um, if you're inclined you're interested in the landscape of the body and where the body can take us that the mind can't so we can read about sex all we want and not know it, or we can have the experience of it and know it differently. So Alex Katakis, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been really um, educated and enlightened by, by our talk. Uh, I'm curious to know where our listeners can find out more about you. Um, they can uh, take a look at my website, which is centerforhealthysex.com, or email me directly at alex at centerforhealthysex.com. Great. And for our uh, listeners in Los Angeles area who'd like to, to find the center, they can go by? Yeah, they can call uh, 310-843-9902. We have intake counselors on the phone every day. So if people have issues around sex, sexuality, sex or love addiction, there's somebody there to help. Well, thanks very much, Alex. All right. Thank you, Sam. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Special thanks to Ian Golden, our technical wizard, bringing us up to date with fantastic audio design. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to us on iTunes and tell a friend. You can also download all our previous podcasts at our website, eslin.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N. Until next time, be well.